Hello everyone, my name is Eric Mercier, I'm co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm going to walk you through the October edition of our Natural Wine Club. First up this month, uh, we're heading to a vineyard that we know extraordinarily well, which is Lightning Rock. Uh, over the last two weeks, Mark and I have spent um, both our entire time working at the vineyard and at the winery, uh, getting to know the processes, learning a ton from Tyler and Jordan, the husband and wife team behind this project, uh, and uh, you know, getting some real insights into both the farming um, and their ideology in the actual winery itself. So to give you sort of the lay of the land, uh, they are in Summerland, which is just south of Kelowna, north of Penticton, um, just beside the lake. Uh, this is an extraordinarily beautiful place to make wine, so if you get a chance, you should definitely go visit them. Uh, they do do tastings at the winery, as long as you're calling ahead to book, uh, or you can book online as well, I believe, through uh, Talk is the system. Um, but it's definitely worth going to check out and tasting through their lineup and hanging out with those guys. Um, what's interesting about this site is that it's planted on essentially just a giant granite boulder. Uh, there's this feature called giant's head uh, which sort of looms over top of them think of it as a sort of a small mountain uh, and they're planted sort of halfway down between the the peak and the lake um, their vineyard is uh, again essentially just decomposed rocks um, rocks that have broken down although a lot of them are still in big chunks and so there's not a ton of subsoil um, so quite uh, nutrient poor quite well draining all things that you'd expect to, you know, result in a really great vineyard site. Uh, this is, you know, being further north in the Okanagan, uh, tends to be a little bit cooler than in the south, especially like somewhere like a Soyuz, uh, where you can get enough heat to ripen some of the bigger, bolder grapes. Here, our focus is primarily on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, although they do have a small amount of Viognier and Syrah planted on their little vineyard as well. Um, they're only farming a couple acres uh, at their, their home site, but they do own two other vineyards, both within you know, a five-minute drive of where their actual winery is. Uh, one of them is Canyon View Vineyard, really beautiful site. Uh, to me, feels a little bit warmer little more uh, protected from the wind, lots of exposed rock basically radiating heat. Um, at the weather station in Summerland, it was showing as being like 18 degrees, and at, the, at Canyon View, it was showing it being 28 degrees, so there's a 10 degree difference in temperature from where the weather station is near the lake. So it's, it goes to show that these sites, even within you know, a really small town, uh, can be quite different from one another. And then their other site is St. Cat's Vineyard, um, St. Catarina. Uh, really amazing site of old vine Pinot Noir, um, abandoned for a bunch of years, and then Tyler and Jordan are, are bringing it back to life through sort of a minimal intervention farming uh, ideology. So not really watering much, you know, not spraying unless they really have to, uh, letting the vines go unpruned, although they have cut out some of the dead wood that's just taking up space. Um, again, very much a minimal intervention approach to, to farming as well as winemaking. Um, on the site that we're talking about today, where the Viognier comes from, it's a little more traditional farming methodology. Um, you know, they're 
spraying organic compounds on, on the vines in order to protect them from things like mildew, um, things like botrytis, other types of rots, etc. But ultimately, they're trying to create an ecosystem where the vines are uh, happy and can sustain themselves. So they've used a lot of things like seaweed in order to get micronutrients into the soil. Uh, we talked about things like boron, um, you know, these like little tiny, I don't know, f factors that really can affect the way that a vine actually grows and is able to, to do photosynthesis. Um, and just trying to create a healthy place for these vines to, to grow up and produce, you know, the best fruit humanly possible. Um, the Viognier, uh, as well as the Syrah, really struggles in this particular climate. Um, we're talking about an area that's quite cool, and Viognier and Syrah traditionally don't do super well in cool climates. They suffer from winter damage, and this year, if you'll remember, we had that huge cold snap where it got super cold. Uh, the Okanagan was also affected by that, and they ended up losing both a lot of vines and then hindering a lot of the buds from ending up turning into grapes, ultimately. Uh, so every single year, they're faced with this sort of dilemma of, like, the wine tastes really, really good, and when we do get a crop, we get quite a significant crop, um, but the vines are definitely struggling here. It's definitely on the edge of where Viognier is possible to grow. I think if you were to plant it any further north, uh, the vines would just ultimately fail, but they're able to sort of, again, still push the boundaries here. And the wine is so good that it's hard for me to imagine them not making it anymore. They've talked time and time again about grafting it over to Chardonnay, but I'm glad they keep putting it off sort of one more year, one more year. Uh, I hope that it'll just get pushed off indefinitely. Uh, as far as winemaking goes, they're pretty minimalist in their winemaking, although they are trying to get as much out of these grapes as possible. Um, so they're doing things like uh, pressing, um, pressing the grapes, uh, taking that juice, and then running it back into the press so that it can basically go over the skins twice. So a lot of the flavor compounds are actually in the skins of the grapes, especially a grape like Viognier that has quite thick skins with lots of flavor compounds, lots of phenolic qualities. And so by crushing the grapes to extract the juice and then taking that juice and reintroducing it to the skins once again, you're sort of getting a double down on flavor. In this case, flavor profile-wise, absolutely gorgeous. For me, jasmine is the first thing that sticks out, that beautiful floral quality. And then you're getting all the orchard fruits. You're getting sort of apricot, nectarine, um, and then also a lot of citrus. You don't normally get a ton of citrus off of Viognier, but for me, this is is very much like baked lemon, um, you know, Meyer lemon, that sort of sweet style of lemon, uh, sort of bringing some acidity, some freshness to this. Um, this was uh, fermented and aged in concrete. Uh, concrete is one of my favorite vessels for, for wine and one of their favorite vessels as well. Um, it uh, really sort of like locks in the heat so you don't end up with drastic temperature changes. Um, not only that, but it, it's because of the shape of these vessels, which are shaped like giant eggs. Uh, the wine is sort of constantly in motion, nothing really settles necessarily, so you're getting more contact with the solids, um, but eventually they are able to rack it off and, and make, you know, some super clean, um, super clean transparent wine. Uh, you'll notice maybe a little bit of haze since they're they're not doing any fining or filtering here, um, 
but compared to a lot of producers, there's not a ton of sludge in the bottle or anything like that. They're really careful about that. Um, as far as pairings go, this is a really versatile wine, despite being from one of the harder-to-pair grapes. Viognier is notorious for being sort of a challenging grape to, to figure out where it fits. It tends to be quite low in acid, versus this one is actually quite bright and fresh. It tends to have an oily texture, uh, which can overpower a lot of food, make certain foods taste bitter, or make the wine taste bitter. Um, but this one doesn't seem to have any of those problems. For me, some of the pairings that make the most amount of sense would be really umami uh, seafood dishes. So talking about things like um, like horse mackerel sash uh, sashimi was one of the first things that came up uh, in my mind. Uh, things like mussels uh, you know, would make a ton of sense with this wine. I'm, I'm a huge fan of that as a sort of uh, you know, base point for your pairing. Um, as far as ageability on this wine, you know, I think it tastes really amazing now, but it can actually go for a couple of years as well and starts developing, again, more sort of a savory quality, more of a bassy quality. Uh, you'll notice a lot of things like orange blossom uh, sort of start to develop uh, some sort of tea-like qualities, which I think are really beautiful as well. Um, ultimately, I think they're doing a really great job. There's a reason why we went to go work there for two weeks is because we wanted to learn from the best of the best. And I really do think that Lightning Rock is making some of the best wines in, in Canada um, and some of the best wines I've ever tasted, frankly, you know, from anywhere in the world. Um, you know, I would definitely drink a ton of this Viognier and, you know, the price to quality ratio is really amazing as well. The second wine that we have for you today is from Intelego. Um, this is a wine that we've included in the club, but it wasn't, uh, well, it's been like two and a half years or something like that since we've included it in the club. So we're onto a different vintage. The wine tastes entirely different now. And so, uh, you know, to sort of celebrate uh, the new arrival of some of their wines, we figured we'd, uh, we'd you know, pan back and, and show you maybe a comparison. I know that there's a handful of people who've been in the club since day one. Um, we sort of forgot to mention it, but it, it's uh, this is now the start of the fourth year of us doing this wine club. Um, so for everybody who's been on board for, you know, those four years or, or you know, for a long time, we really appreciate you doing that. Um, but this is a really cool opportunity to to show how wines change, uh, how the flavor profiles can can become different, how from year to year you end up with entirely different blends, um, different quantities, different alcohol levels, and, and different flavor profiles that reflect those vintages. Uh, so the wine that we chose today is, is Kadungu. Um, most of his wines are named after... Uh, you know, something to do with surfing. Uh, Jürgen, the winemaker, uh, super nice dude, but definitely um, into the uh, lax lifestyle. Uh, when I was in South Africa, we were supposed to meet up with him, and he's like, ah, I'm actually going surfing today, which I really appreciate. I like uh, that sort of, you know, relaxed uh, ideology, but then in the vineyard and in the winery, he's a little more intense uh, makes these like crystal clear, perfect, perfect wines. Um, he worked in Cote Roti. Uh, Cote Roti, for those of you who don't know, is in the Northern Rhone in France. It's one of the most famous regions in the world and one of the regions that I like the most out of all places in the world. Uh, if I could drink wine from there more often, I would, but they are extraordinarily expensive, especially the winery that he worked at, uh, which is called Domaine Jamais. 
Uh, if you get a chance to try those wines, they're outstanding. But he learned to make Syrah from them, um, or at least in part from them. Also a couple local legends as well, including Craig Hawkins uh, from Testalonga. Um, so for me, you know, his ability to, to make really good Syrah and the other Rome grape varieties as well, including Cinso and Mouvedre that we have in this particular wine, uh, it, it just really shines through. Syrah is a, a grape variety that I have a particular affinity for. It tends to be quite peppery, quite spicy, quite gamey, um, yet has this brightness and freshness when made in, in, you know, in a particular way, which I would argue this one is. Um, this is whole cluster fermentation, meaning they don't take the grapes off the stems. We've talked about this many times before, but it definitely adds, again, uh, more of a spice characteristic, but also allows for what we call carbonic maceration, which brings out the fruitiness. So you're both getting amped up fruitiness and savoriness, depending on how you're actually making those wines. Uh, the vineyards that we have here are quite diverse as well. Uh, you're getting a huge variety of soil types uh, here in the Swartland, which is just north of Cape Town in South Africa. Um, you have everything from quartz-rich clay. Uh, clay is great for holding onto water, which is perfect for a uh, country that experiences a lot of drought, um, as well as ferrocrete, uh, as well as decomposed granite. Uh, so we're talking about iron-infused soils uh, that add, again, even more savoriness, even more umami, kind of a rusticity, um, as well as things like granite and sandstone, uh, decomposed sandstone, which add sort of this elegance, uh, you know, depending on who you're talking to, maybe in my opinion. Um, but yeah, so you have this huge diversity as well as a diversity of uh, ages of vines planted all the way back to 1988 with more recent ones being planted in the early 2000s. So again, you're getting this, uh, you know, sort of unintentional perhaps, but uh, real variation in terroir uh, and sort of this, you know, this complexity that's coming from more than just the grapes themselves. Uh, coming from age of vine, coming from soil types, coming from all these different things. Um, for me, this is one of the most astonishing wines in our portfolio. It is extraordinarily low in alcohol, uh, often coming in at 11.5% uh, alcohol, 12% alcohol, somewhere in there. Um, yet, at the same time, it has massive intensity. Uh, it has dark fruit flavors, which you don't normally expect from a wine of that style, um, or at least of that alcohol level. Uh, as well as uh, tannins. We don't talk about tannins a ton on this podcast because a lot of the wines that we work with don't really have extreme tannins. They're, they're more sort of delicate. Um, they don't have that mouth-drying effect necessarily on a lot of the red wines. But tannins, for those of you who don't know, are uh, phenolic compounds that come from the skins of the grapes. They are often found in things like green tea. So if you have a very strong cup of green tea, you notice your mouth dries out. Same thing that happens in red wine. Uh, and it's because of the same, same you know, group of, of molecules, tannins. Um, these tannins, you know, sort of the more uh, skins that are involved in the winemaking, the more tannin you're going to get. So that means either extended skin contact, meaning that 
when you're making the wine, you're allowing the juice to sit in contact with the skins for really extended periods of time. Sometimes, you know, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days in some cases. Um, most of our producers go a lot less than that. In this case, I think this was like 10 days on skins or something like that. Very, uh, you know, a, a short period of time. Um, or you could have grapes that have thicker skins. And in this case, Syrah and Mouvedre, uh, two of the components of this particular wine, have quite thick skins. They end up yielding wines with a little more tan into them. Uh, you can look to things like Gigonda or Chateauneuf du Pop as, as great examples of um, you know, how Mouvedre, uh, in combination with other things, can, can add a lot of structure. Um, for me, this wine is uh, very gastronomic, meaning it pairs extraordinarily well uh, with food. For me, I think that this, this wine almost demands food, uh, even though it's got like sunglasses on the front of it and, you know, it's, it's, it is bright and fresh in theory. Uh, I think that it just performs so much better when you serve it with things like sausages. Um, you know, I can't remember what I wrote as, as my actual wine pairing, but I assume that it's, it's something grilled. Uh, you know, it likes smokiness, it likes those sort of characteristics. It gets along with them really well. And not only that, but fat tends to uh, hide tannin. So if, you, if you're not a fan of tannic wines, wines with that, that sort of grippiness to them, um, definitely try them alongside of, of something that's a little more fatty. Uh, and you'll notice that those tannins are sort of dissipated. It basically coats your tongue and, and prevents you from you know, feeling the full effects. Uh, yeah, I'm completely blown away by this wine. Speaking of incredible value, this is definitely like house wine worthy. Uh, it's about 30 bucks on the shelf um, and over delivers as far as complexity goes. Wildly complex, wildly you know, structured, finessed, all these sort of things that we really like in wine um, and you know, without breaking the bank. So definitely go support Jurgen, uh, you know, put a couple of his bottles in the cellar. They get crazy reviews every year. Uh, there's a lot of pundits that think that they're doing a pretty spectacular job, and we, we tend to agree. The last wine that we have in the wine club, uh, you'll be the first to taste this, uh, which is really, really exciting. Um, we got this shipment a little while back and hung on to all of it for, for wine club. We haven't gone around and poured it for everybody yet, so uh, the only shops that actually have this wine on the shelf are the shops included in the wine club, and they're just getting them right in time for you to actually taste them. So this is Laurent Sayard, uh, a producer who we've included in the wine club before in the past as well, but this is a brand new wine from him. Um, it's called La Paire. Uh, this is uh, kind of a cool project where his basically the last couple of years have been really hard in the Loire Valley in France. They've lost a lot of grapes to mildew. They've lost a lot of grapes to hail and frost and all these things that you don't want happening. Um, because of that, Laurent hasn't been able to keep up with demand. Uh, you know, when he's making fifty percent less wine than than he would in a good year, and so. Uh, his friend reached out to him and he's like, hey, like I, I have some grapes to sell, um, you know, organic vineyard 15 minutes away from him. Um, he's like, would you want to make some wine from my grapes, not just the vineyards that you own? He's like, yeah, like that sounds fantastic. Um, so his friend, Julien Moreau, uh, he has his own, um, his own winery as well. Uh, but it's kind of this like really great pairing where uh, 
Um, you know, his winery is maybe a little less uh, famous and sought after at the moment. So by selling some grapes to Laura Sayard, who is quite famous and his wines are super sought after, uh, you know, it sort of hypes him up a little bit, being like, if Laura Sayard wants to drink these wines and thinks that the grapes are of this caliber, then everybody else should also be jumping on it, um, which, again, makes a ton of sense to me. Uh, this wine is made from Grolo. Uh, a great variety that we've never included in the club before because it's super, super rare. It's indigenous to the Loire Valley. Um, for me, it has a lot of characteristics that are similar to Gamay Noir, but also to Cabernet Franc, which is makes sense because it grows next to those two things. Um, tends to have a little bit of a savory quality to it. Uh, I find that whenever I smell Grelot, I always get this like weird hint of like oatmeal cookie, which again, could completely just be my particular palate. It's a really wacky tasting note and doesn't make a ton of sense. But for me, every time I have Grillo, uh, I definitely think oatmeal cookie. So you'll, you'll have to tell me whether or not I'm, you know, off the wall there a little bit. Uh, and it's blended with Gamay Noir, uh, a great variety that we feature in this club a lot uh, because we keep getting asked for it over and over again. So we're just going to keep putting Gamay Noir in the club. Although next month is getting a a little wild. We'll do a little foreshadowing and say that next month is is definitely some new regions for everybody, uh, some new grape varieties, some new winemaking methodologies. Uh, it's it's really out there, but I think uh, next month is going to be sort of the adventurer's dream come true. Uh, so you'll have to uh, you know you'll have to hold on for a little bit. Um, but yeah, one of the things that I like about this wine a lot is that it is 11.5% alcohol. So both the reds that we have this month are super low in alcohol. This is something that I really like and I think the market is, is really trending towards. Historically speaking, it's been really hard to make wines uh, that are under you know, 12.5-12% alcohol that are dry, meaning that they don't have any sugar, and that still show all the ripeness um, all the venosity that we'd expect out of a wine. Usually when you harvest grapes early enough to make them, you know, 11.5% alcohol, they'll taste really green. They'll taste very herbaceous. Uh, the tannins will be sort of uncomfortable. It'll be like chewing on celery stalks or, you know, something sort of like bitter and harsh and green. Um, but through a better understanding of their vineyards, through a better understanding of, of grape uh, vine physiology and, and you know, getting a handle on the ripening curve and understanding all that, we're able to make these wines that do taste like wines, like proper wines give you all the satiation and satisfaction that you get from a big red wine, but you're getting it at these lower alcohol levels, uh, more delicate, more finessed, something you can drink, you know, a, a big chunky glass of and, and not, you know, not feel bad about it. Uh, and so I absolutely adore this. For me, this is like the quintessential uh, like bistro wine. Even though it's super complex and really compelling and, and you know, I want to drink a dozen bottles of it, uh, it still has this, um, you know, wine for the people kind of quality to it where it's like, this is what, you know, thoughtful farmers are drinking. Uh, this is what Laurent himself is probably drinking. It's energetic, it's lively, it's jovial, it has all the things that I really like, this rustic edge. Um, you know, the Loire Valley is famous for uh, a particular type of funk. Uh, I don't know how to exactly classify it, but, you know, the a lot of people describe that farmyard kind of quality, uh, often coming from Britannomyces, so a particular strain of yeast. But I think the Loire Valley just has a certain smell to it that is very pastoral, um, 
And this wine definitely sort of embraces that. I think I would keep the pairing pretty simple on this too, even though it goes with literally everything, whether you're doing pizza or pasta or, or any of those sort of things. Um, for me, I think just like some cheese and meat on a plate outside somewhere when it's cold out, like that's the vibe for me 100%. I think it's such a good style for that. Um, it just makes me crave going to France and uh, <laughs> I don't know, go anywhere, frankly, at this point. But um, yeah, in particular, it makes me want to go back to tour. It was raining pretty much the entire time that we were there. Uh, and I can just imagine, you know, drinking that wine in, in our little like underground cave of a Airbnb um, with some cheese that we picked up from the local, you know, like little corner store, essentially. Um, yeah, definitely a vibe that I'm super, super into right now. From a flavor perspective, this is a lot like Beaujolais, um, but then has this herbaceous sort of undertone, um, this real sort of freshness to it, this liveliness, this floral quality. Uh, again, I could drink a lot of this particular wine. We'll keep it pretty simple today. Uh, if anybody has any questions about any of these wines or any of these producers, definitely A, click the links in your newsletter. Um, they're to the individual producer pages on our website, which have great write-ups about the visits that we've had there, has pictures of the wineries and the vineyards, um, at least in any case where, where we've been able to grab those pictures uh, ourselves. We don't like to put things on the website that aren't ours, so... Uh, all, of, all the pictures are from us actually going and visiting and hanging out with these people. So they are quite personal uh, and intimate in some cases. So definitely go check those out. Um, but you can definitely send us an email as well. Uh, my email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Uh, and you can ask anything you like about any of the wines. If there's questions that you have that you want cleared up in the next episode, I would definitely be happy to do that for you. Uh, we can also do it exclusively via email as well, or you can send us a message on Instagram. We're just at Juice Imports. Uh, either way, we look forward to chatting with you soon and hopefully drinking some wine in person. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Cheers. <laughs>